was the J cut and now we're here with the K cut. My name is Rachel and I'm a big fan of world cinema. I write a column for Films Fatale and I'm here with my two co-hosts this evening. Who's here with me? James here, content creator, podcaster, musician. I have an affinity for new Hollywood cinema as well as lo-fi, no budget cinema. And I am one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. I also release music under the alias Boutique Paul. This is Andreas. I love all types of cinema, but if I had to boil it down to one type, I guess maybe art house Warren film. Um, obviously I'm the, the creator and main editor of films fatale, but I also, and I don't plug this enough. I also run a podcast with my, with my buddies. Uh, that's a rap pod. What we talk about the Toronto Raptors. So that's worth checking out as well, especially because the season's halfway through and we're doing okay, but we're back to talking about movies right now. So today's topic is actually one that you James came up with, and it's kind of a spin on something that we've heard before where it's like, you know, based on a true story type movies, but this isn't quite that. Can you please detail what your topic this week is? Well, the idea was to pick a film that was, inspired by true events not necessarily based on where you're not taking something that's absolutely factual and dramatizing the events something that's more so adjacent to it to where it's implied what it's about but it's not directly that it you know changes a lot of names characters and settings and such stuff like that It, it was kind of inspired by how that horror movie the strangers is partly inspired by the manson murders but also simultaneously inspired by some break-ins that the director had you know heard about going on in his neighborhood when he was a kid so i thought it'd be fun to talk about you know movies that are like that because i mean there's a lot of great movies out there that you know take from a situation without being exactly about that and trying to tell that story yeah i mean that's such a great concept because it takes something that's kind of been talked about to death. And I mean, we've talked about like literary adaptations where it's like, um, you know, like the reinvention, but this really places you in the mind of the writer or the, the, the director who has like completely reimagined this as much as possible. And like almost in a, a, a completely original way. So I think that that is such a important spin on it. So I can't wait to get started. Let's start with Rachel. What was your pick for this discussion? Okay, well, picture this. It's 1916. You are on the East Coast of the U.S. and you're escaping a heat wave and a polio epidemic. So you decide to go on a nice vacation to the Jersey Shore. Tragically, there's something in the water. It drags you in and you have been eaten by a shark. Before the 1916 Jersey Shore shark attacks, which I think killed five people over the course of the summer... The shark was not believed to be a harmful creature. It was considered to be harmless, just a giant fish. But after that, the perception of the shark was shifted into a sort of villainous creature, something that could kill you, as we had seen over this past summer. A few decades down the line, Peter Benchley wrote a novel, which was loosely inspired by these events. He moved it up to the 70s, but he kept it in an American coastal town. He talked about tourists and the effects of tourism, Steven Spielberg got hold of this, and the blockbuster was born, and that was Jaws. Oh, they made Indiana Jones for a second. Oh, yes, uh, Jaws. So tell us, tell us more about, about this movie, Jaws. I, I don't know if I've actually heard of it. <laughs> okay, so what interested me is the fact that this series of attacks in 1916 completely changed the perception of the shark. And then later, Peter Benchley was inspired to write Jaws based on these events and also perhaps on a shark hunter who may or may not have been the inspiration for Quint. But the effect of that movie didn't just create the shark as a menacing creature. It caused an entire generation of people to fear the water and to call and attack sharks. 
and it caused this horrific backlash against them that has left many species in danger to this day and causes way more damage to them than they do to us. Peter Benchley's even gone on record saying that if he had known how many myths about sharks' jaws perpetrated, how much damage it would cause, he would have treated it very differently, and he regrets writing it the way it was. So, in essence, these events and this book and this movie have caused havoc for an entire species just based on one, possibly one, rook shark running around the Jersey Shore in 1916. But that's amazing. It blows my mind. Yeah, that's amazing that you brought up this example because, you know, as I was saying at the start of this, with this idea, this isn't necessarily based on a true story. It's taking true events and really spinning them in a whole new way. But (laughs) it's crazy that, as you said, that one singular event spun because of Jaws, spun into this whole mythos of... (laughs) sharks are the most dangerous thing on earth yeah. and you're going to get eaten by them everywhere. And it's like, because it's not based on a true story. It's like partially inspired by something. I turned it into a horror film, a sensationalist horror film. And here it is still almost 50 years later still is like the main reason why people are terrified of sharks, which they have every right to be terrified of sharks. But let me tell you, hippopotamuses are more deadly. Coconuts falling on your head have more of a chance of killing mm-hmm. you. Sharks really aren't as big of a threat as people think. Not to say that you should swim with them, but Jaws isn't like a frequent occurrence. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind that up until about 105 years ago, sharks were considered harmless. I mean, did they see their teeth? Like, it, it's, it amazes me that one news event and later this movie, which I would say... Do you know what I mean when I say it codified the trope? It brought it to greater public attention? Yeah. Of course. The movie really cemented the shark's reputation forever. But it's also fascinating because Jaws has been, it has resurfaced, no pun intended, within the last year for a very funny reason. People look at Jaws and they're like, this is a movie about a scary shark that goes on killing people. When really, the bigger truth is the people who just went swimming anyway when they were told not to. And that's what I've seen with this pandemic where it's like people don't listen. That's the thing in Jaws that's the most realistic, not the shark that goes rogue and kills everybody. It's the people that don't listen and put themselves in harm's way. Exactly. There were so many memes about closing the beaches. Yeah, it's wild. I didn't realize Jaws was based on a book, nor did I realize that it was based on real life shark attacks in the early 1900s. Yeah, and they thought it was World War One, so they they tried to blame it on on the Germans for a while, actually. But of course, they oh, did. Come on. <laughs> mm-hmm. The U.S. Yeah, was not aware at this point. Yeah, yeah, they were like, well, it was conspiracy theorists, but they were like, yeah, the Germans uh, are sending U-boats or whatever, whatever they had in 1916. The U.S. wasn't even in the war at that point. <laughs> Well, partial kudos to Spielberg and his team, which Jaws is one of his finest films, no matter how you feel about him as a filmmaker. Uh, the special effects are still so phenomenal. So that uh, part of it is like, you know, the disguising of like, you know, this big, obviously fake shark, but the little screen time you see of it. Mm-hmm. So I guess so many creative maneuvers to make this really come to life, I guess, did its job a little too well. Yeah, exactly. And you can even see the shark, or at least you could a few years ago at Universal Studios. And yeah, that thing is pretty fake looking. So I'm glad they kept it out. But yet, people still bought into it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's an excellent example. Mine's a little bit different. So, okay, how do I say this? Are either of you familiar with A Brighter Summer Day by Edward Yang? No. 
So A Brighter Summer Day is one of the best films of the 90s, in my opinion. It's arguably the greatest Taiwanese film ever made. So this is like a four-hour-long movie, huge, like literally like over 100 different characters. It's like this big, big epic. And when you watch this thing, you're like okay, this is this is like almost Shakespearean where it's like just so many layers of like narrative complexity and, you know, setting up the tone of the story and the setting of like the school with these rival gangs. And it all boils up to like one moment. And unfortunately for this one, it's a bit of a spoiler. So if you guys want me to go ahead, I can. If not, I can just try and disguise it a little bit and, and keep going. I'd say disguise it, just in case. Okay. This entire film, which if that's the case, avoid Wikipedia. This entire film boils up to this climax. And again, four hours it takes to get to this. And it's just such a like massive climax. But what makes this even more fascinating is that all of this was because that climax was something that Edward Yang saw in the news, where it was like this random story this, this this tragedy that happened on the news locally, and he basically wondered, like, "Huh, I wonder how that happened." And made this entire huge thing, the setting, these characters, which I don't even think have anything to do with what actually happened, outside of like the people involved in their ages and their relationship, this tragedy, but everything else, like who these characters are, what they did in their daily lives what their upbringings were. All of that was created because he basically wondered why did this happen? And I think that's just so fascinating that he did that because it's not even just like an hour long. It's an epic. It's one of the most gargantuan films I think I've ever seen. Like the sets are massive. The amount of backstory is huge. Like it's a justifiable four hour film. It's not like they could have cut it down. Like there's just so much stuff going on. So in his version, he also co connects his upbringing, you know, like somebody who grew up in Taiwan. So using that as the case study for the uh, Chinese people who were brought up in Taiwan and a lot of those societal struggles where it's like, you know, like the different suburbs clashing together, the different classes clashing together and that develops into rival gangs and the schools. So a big thing is, you know, all of these butting of heads and these tensions that are rising and children with like the, the authorities or like the school system, that's a tension as well. The tensions that, that are risen in like neighborhoods and domestic settings. So it's called a brighter summer day because it's reflecting on like the day that the tragedy happens or whatever it is. But in a sense, it's almost like, a really long version of do the right thing where it's like just this boiling sense of heat just that just won't stop over this i don't remember how long it is it's it's certainly not a day it's like a, a much longer time than do the right thing but it's just how intricate can he make these relationships and all of the ways that tension is caused right until this cauldron boils over and i think that's just crazy that all of that stemmed from something he just caught a glimpse of on the news and he just basically said, I'm going to put my own answer to that. Like why this happened? Cause I've got to figure it out. How could something this devastating happen? That sounds incredible. Oh my God. It's one of those things where if you love cinema, I know it's challenging because it's four hours, but it's one of those things where it's like, it's almost a must just to say that you've seen something like this. Cause 
Yang and the scope of his films are like crazy, but this is like the best thing he's ever done. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you, you really sold it to me there. We should make that our motto, the K-Cut. I'll have to check that out. <laughs> we should, actually. We can, make that, we can put that on t-shirts. Yeah, exactly. Well, now I'm very glad that I didn't like, you know, give away too much. And again, if you're interested, really stay away from Wikipedia because it's like, it's one of those movies where the premise is like basically the ending. So just, just oh, avoid it. Go into it blindly if you want to. Yeah, I guess because neither of you have seen it. I guess that's kind of it on mine. But otherwise, listeners, uh, both of you, Brighter Summer Day, legendary. Uh, James, what's your selection? So my selection is a film. What started as the original idea to be a documentary about the Columbine High School Massacre, but was dropped in favor of a fictional story instead. My film is 2003's Palm to Or winning, and in my opinion, Gus Van Sant's opus, Elephant. Oh, yes. I knew it. See, this one we've all seen. I haven't. Oh, okay. You just know of it then. Yeah, I know of its reputation and the sort of style he used. And I love Gus Van Sant in general. So You'll have to check it out. I will. It's amazing. <laughs> It's just so captivating because initially the concept almost seems taboo to tackle, Mm -hmm. but the way he does it is just so breathtaking. It kind of gives you insight into the minds of these kids who are getting ready to shoot up their school and shoot their classmates. Mm. But there's also the style he uses where he has that parallel nonlinear narrative where he's introducing all these individual characters and who they are in their lives and kind of weaving it in together until it sort of meets in the middle. And there's points where it jumps back and forth in time. But you just really get this sense of these teenagers who are all confused on both sides of the spectrum. You have these two kids who, you know, you don't even hear a backstory. You just know they're planning this event. And then you go into the school and then there's people, you know, all the murders happening and all these kids are like, what's going on? Everyone's freaking out. And there's one scene in particular that always gets me. It's and I remember the character's name is Benny and he's a younger black kid. And there's a point where he's walking around the school. He catches one of them with a back turn and he's inching up and creeping up to attack him. And then he sees him and gets shot down. And it's like, oh, man, we could have had a hero here. It also does this great cinematography where it's constantly following characters you don't really see a lot of direct head-on like close-ups or face shots it's literally like this camera's following everybody and that's actually something he borrowed from a a bbc short film that is also titled elephant where i think there's a scene where somebody's going through i think this person's murdering people also but it, it has that same style where it's like he's shooting he's going off into different rooms or something like that. I haven't seen it myself. I just I'm just trying to go based off of memory of what it's about. But yeah, it definitely takes something. I don't know. It's I'm kind of glad that it wasn't didn't end up being a documentary because we wouldn't have such a great film. But it's also interesting because there was no written script. A lot of the dialogue is improvised and it's all you know first time actors, if I remember correctly, and they're all teenagers. Yeah. And just the performances they give are so honest. He really made magic with that movie. And it was just, you know, and it's only one of them in his, what is referred to as death trilogy, which begins with Jerry, then it's elephant and then ends with last days. Jerry is based on a story of two guys who are wandering in the desert. They get lost. And then by the end of it, one of them gets sick of it and asks the other to kill him because he can't take it. And then shortly after they're found, that one's okay. It's, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a bore. It's very overlong. And then last days is actually check that out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And last days is actually a dramatization of Kurt Cobain's last days. Oh, oh yes. Wow. 
Yeah, that, that one's an interesting one, too. Yeah, it's just a really great film. And it also won the Palme d'Or. I'm pretty sure it was a unanimous vote when it won, Thanks. which is a rarity, you know, when everyone's on the same page about it. Especially with a film like this. Yeah. And this was 2003, so it would have been very, very recent in everybody's minds, only a few years. I wonder if after everything we've seen in the 17 years since, it would hit differently somehow. I don't. I only just watched it for the first time last year, and it almost just barely missed my 2000s list it still made me sick it, it made me very very sick and it's one of those things where i feel like a lot of people who watch movies might see something like this and be like that's a terrible movie you know it's it's sympathizing letting not every film is a form of entertainment or identifiability this is a film where it's just a neutral perspective of a very disturbing real event and as an observer, I think you feel everything that Gus Van Sant wants you to feel, which is like just just how like the lunacy of this all. But at the same time, there's just no answer sometimes. It just happens, stuff like this. You can't blame music. You can't blame video games. Even though I believe in, in the film, they kind of touch upon that kind of stuff a little bit as well. But I think the way Gus Van Sant treats it, basically at the end of the day, these are all just teenagers and it's... It's it's really it's it's difficult to talk about. It's difficult to to analyze. Um, but sometimes some of the better films are. And yeah, I, I do think it's one of Gus Van Sant's best films. It's it's a tricky one to talk about, though, for sure. Oh, yeah. And it also the thing, something that people should realize with a story like this is especially with teenagers, they aren't really aware of their own mortality yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think they're getting a crash course on the limits of their lifespan in the blink of an eye. It's like the teenagers who like speed in their cars. Cause it's like, we finally got a license. We're invincible. Oh yeah. That's definitely a thing where when you're younger, you just don't realize. It was also the movie that made me realize that Palm d'Or winners have very distinct endings. Yeah. Yeah. When I saw the end of it, like out of all of the ones I've seen, they all have, there's a certain type of ending a, a, a Palm d'Or winner has. It, I can't really put my finger on it, but you understand why these films win these awards when you see them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess it's like the the lasting impact. It's like a good essay. You end really well. You you stick in people's minds. And that's important with a jury. So And so many movies have been ruined by a bad ending when they were fine up until then. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I don't know if it was fine, but Nymphomaniac. I'll never let that down. Uh, it's, no. it's like, <laughs> seriously. That ending could go away. You know, ending was disappointing. La La Land. That whole movie was disappointing. What are you talking about? Oh, well, yeah, I guess we're going to I liked it up until the ending. I like all of it. What I wish was La would be to see it on film instead of digital. I think it was completely muted by being on digital. Sorry, that was my pet peeve. Oh, on film, though. That would have been gorgeous. Like, with the colors? City of Stars should not have won Best Song because it's not a song. It's a warm-up exercise. Oh, well, I like that song. I know it's not like vocally the, the most impressive, but like I, I, I still love that song. I, mm-hmm. Well, I guess I'm, I'm talking to, I'm talking to somebody who, um, this movie wasn't made for. This isn't. This is for like people who enjoy film. But like, if you love musicals, everybody that I know that loves dance and musicals hates this movie. Pretty much. Because it's 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 a love letter, but it's like more of like a candy gram where it's like you know you just like eat it and it's it's kind of done. It didn't really do much. If yeah. you love musicals and stuff, this is this is barely anything. Or if you love jazz, it's also barely Oscar anything. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I love it as a film, but I, I totally get your grapes. Mm-hmm. But now we're moving on to the next phase of this episode. So we were discussing films that were partially inspired by real events. I, I guess before I, I ask James what the next phase is, Rachel, your answer is not going to be La La Land for this, I'm guessing. No. <laughs> so, James, no. what is phase two of this episode? So, phase two, I thought it'd be fun to talk about films that we wish happened you know, in real life. You know, like if you were thinking, man, what if the Terminator actually happened in real life? Like, what's a film that you think, man, this would be really fun if this actually happened? Who would wish that? I mean, it looks cool. I feel like this can have very interesting answers. James, what's yours? Let's start off with you. I'm going to have to go with Steven Soderbergh's Ocean's Eleven. Okay, see, that's interesting. That's a good one. Yeah, that's interesting. It's just because the whole situation's kind of silly and ridiculous. This group of people who should, on paper, do should not work as a team, pull off the biggest heist ever. <laughs> and just, just the different personalities involved and the, the fact that... And they're so cool when they do it. <laughs> yeah, and also Danny has this kind of like, you know ulterior motive because his wife <laughs> it happens to be dating the casino owner uh, see unless you own that casino this doesn't bother you in any sort of a way so like to hear like this story where yeah we're rooting for the bad guys but it's like this this band of bandits who who pulled this off and like you know they happen to be suave they're all different in personality that would make for a hell of a story like in the news where it's like these 11 suspects and it's like this these 11 okay all right right this is interesting (laughs) it's just it's just funny especially with the trouble they went through to actually try to figure out how to pull this off because you know it seems like there are so many missteps and then they just pulled it off perfectly and then it also reveals terry benedict just being an awful person in the end because he's basically like hey would you give up Tess if we gave your money back he's like yeah of course absolutely even though they have their cameras rigged for her to see it i think that's a solid choice because like when you brought up the example of the terminator like when you were posing this to us i was like James, be realistic. <laughs> That's like, like, like I love Chinatown, but I hate the fact that it's so real that this stuff does happen. This corruption. I'm not going to wish that it was real or like, uh, what's, um, what's up at a time in the West. I'm not going to be thrilled. That there's like people getting shot up down the street. Like I love it as a movie, but I'd hate if that stuff was real or happening around me, but oceans 11. That's unless you're the casino, that's harmless. That's interesting. Rachel, what's your pick? Well, mine's a little weird. So, it's a wonderful life. Okay. I love the idea that you can see alternate ways the universe might have played out. So, I think the the one that Jimmy Stewart goes through is a little bit of a double-edged sword. Because if you're as nice as Jimmy Stewart, yeah, everybody's going to be sad that you never existed. Like, their lives will be worse. But if you're not as nice as Jimmy Stewart, like most people, you know, you might get a rude awakening about how people actually see you. But I love the idea. This implies that if you make a big declaration, like, I wish I'd never been born, an angel could come show you other parts of your life that might have gone differently. And so you have this gateway to alternate visions that you don't have to stay in forever, but you can see how things play out. Maybe you'll become a librarian. Ooh, but see, that's really cool because that makes me feel like I misunderstood this and the possibilities of this question entirely. Because I was thinking, like, when, you know, when James said the Terminator, not the possibility of like, you know, like the, the parallel dimensions or whatever, like these beings, it's literally 
people are getting killed left, right, and center, like that sort of a thing. But if you're looking at it as this possibility of being able to see your fate and being able to choose mm-hmm. how how you continue to live, that's really cool. Yeah, it, it made me think because It's a Wonderful Life has been parodied so many times, but the Jimmy Stewart one, you've never been born. Okay, that that's one question. But then I've seen other ones where the character might wish they never got in a particular romantic relationship or they never moved to this city or things like that. It's often on sitcoms. So there's a lot of different ways Jimmy Stewart could have taken this. Yeah, but... What if he'd never taken over his father's business? You know, that sort of thing. Exactly. I think, like you said, we're all happy that Jimmy Stewart stuck around and you know lived you know existed at all he's he's Mm -hmm. one of the greats and and one of the saints of hollywood i would have to say and and the army basically exactly and and he served as well right he did in real life not in the movie he was deaf in the movie he was deaf in one year yeah he did in real life yes yeah exactly that's what i mean like he served in like i think was the military i'm not exactly sure but Mm -hmm. um what a saint all around so Mm -hmm. In case I haven't hinted at it enough, uh, it's not that I misunderstood. I kind of went for a cop-out, and I I hate when I hear people who do that, so I'm a bit of a hypocrite. But I kind of went with two movies which serve the same purpose by the same director, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about as soon as I bring them up. Even if I bring up the name of the guy, because these are revisionist films. Two words, Quentin Tarantino. So the fact that Hitler gets shot up in in Inglorious Bastards, destroys everything, and all the Nazis burn. And a fire. Right? So that's uh, thematically relevant for us, a film podcast. I guess it's also a movie. But also Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which kind of brings things back around with what you were bringing up, James, about that film inspired by the Manson murders. I'm a massive Sharon Tate fan. I just like you know, I wonder what if, you know, her career was on this trajectory. She's like the loveliest person and all of that, you know, a mother to be, all of that was taken away by disgusting people. So I remember like the first time I saw once upon a time in Hollywood, I was like borderline on the verge of tears and just knowing what Tarantino did um, with this film anyways. And now I understand why he wanted to release it on the 50th anniversary of her death. It wasn't a rub in the exploitation. It was something else. It was a means to rewrite history. I thought it was a fitting tribute. Exactly. So in a sense, it's like these are revisionist films, his way of saying, I wish I could rewrite history. And this is my way of doing so, whether it's the Nazis or the Manson family. And that's my answer. I wish he could. I wish oh, that I totally was real for that. Yeah, I think with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, because I really appreciated that ending. When that happened, I was like, you know what? This was very fitting. It was a great tribute. And uh, well, there was also, what was it? I think uh, Sharon Tate's sister, because she's still alive. She said that when she (laughs) saw it, she was in tears because she said it was like seeing her sister again because Margot Robbie's performance was so good. She gave Robbie some of Tate's jewelry to wear in the movie, actually, as a sign of her blessing. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) You know, I often wonder what would happen if she hadn't have died, uh, obviously with her career and obviously what would happen with Roman Polanski's life, because, you know, they'd still be together, I- I'm assuming. But, you know, with Sharon Tate's death, I often kind of mark that as foreshadowing to what was to come style or not style wise, story wise in the new Hollywood movie, because this is right before, you know, this happens. And then all of a sudden the material gets really dark. Well, it actually is 
pinpointed as the end, like the literal end of old Hollywood, because new Hollywood mm-hmm. is on the rise. And the sun, the sunshine era of the sixties with like, you know, the hippie movement and the, you know, all the, like all love, you know, let's be together. All of that ended all of the joy previously of Hollywood of America. All of that ended that night. The summer of 1969 was also pretty politically meteoric in general. So exactly. So, but this was like the cherry on top where it's like, now it's finished. So, and especially cause it's like tied to, you know, the Manson family was saying like your husband made Rosemary's baby, which is a massive shift in like, you know, what would influence the new Hollywood movement. So, you know, your husband made this film and you're carrying the, the devil in you or whatever the hell they, they, they professed. And the whole thing is just so tragic though. And, you know, even like 51, 52 years later, almost at this point, you know, obviously the shift afterwards was monumental, but like for pop culture, for film, for so many things, it's, Obviously, it's, it's devastating, and I wish that uh, Tarantino's version, savage dog biting and a uh, flamethrower and all, I wish, I wish that was the real thing. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, there's only one thing I wish they w- he would have included in this movie. What's that? There's that scene where you get kind of a clip of Bruce Lee training Sharon Tate. Yes. I wish he would have mm-hmm. inserted a scene where he's ha- or she's having a conversation with him that would have been the antithesis of the fight scene in the flashback. To kind of counterbalance it because i know there were a lot of people mad over that yeah like a little bit more that like showed the real him because you know you could justify and say this was brad pitt's character's memory which is flawed and one-sided but like to see like yeah like like the humanized bruce lee so he doesn't seem like a a stereotype or like a shadow of like who he actually was as a person a little more yeah i, I do under i do I, I see where you're getting at for sure but we're not recommending what Tarantino could have done. Now we're recommending our films of the week for you, dear listeners. So we're going to sign off with uh, some films that might be relevant. They might not be relevant at all of what you should be watching. Rachel, what is your weekly recommendation? Mine is called San Francisco. It's from 1936. And it is actually an event that happened, which was the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. It really does a good job of portraying early early 20th century San Francisco, which was really a phenomenal place full of interesting people. And Clark Gable and Spencer Tracy play the leads. They're best friends. And then Jeanette McDonald is Clark Gable's love interest. She has some beautiful music in it. And the special effects of the earthquake are amazing, especially considering it was 1936. So that's my recommendation. Cool. As we say, I'll have to check that out. James, uh, what is yours? I'm going to go with the film Mr. Lonely by Harmony Corinne. Okay. It's a really interesting film that stars Diego Luna as a Michael Jackson impersonator. Mm. He meets a Marilyn Monroe impersonator and she brings him to this island where there's this commune full of impersonators. What? It's it's super interesting. It's not amazing. And it's one of those ones that gets kind of lost in his filmography, but it's really interesting, especially with all the different people includes because this Marilyn Monroe impersonator is married to a Charlie Chaplin impersonator (laughs) and their daughter is a Shirley Temple impersonator. (laughs) This sounds like an amazing concept. Yeah. You have, you know, someone's playing Sammy Davis Jr. There's a buckwheat from the little rascals. And yeah, it's really interesting. It just kind of has this not, not really any sort of direct narrative, but it's this interaction with these people in the situation of being impersonators in a commune. And it was partially inspired apparently by him actually spending time in a commune with his family. 
Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting. <laughs> uh, well, I have a feeling that's going to be uh, one of your recommendations to either of us down the road for Cinematic Smorgasbord, because clearly neither of us have seen it, but that sounds wild. Jeez. Um, I, I did not know he made that. That's crazy. Uh, okay, so uh, on the crazy train, this was one of the things I was thinking of for this episode, actually. It's the psychological horror film Possession by Andre Zulowski, which I think is his only English film. It stars one of my favorite performances ever. It stars Isabella Gianni and uh, Sam Neill, who are a, a marriage you know, a couple that's basically on the verge of splitting. It's not going well at all. And this was inspired by Zolowski's own divorce that was happening around this time. And it's so extreme. It's arguably the most hyper, like hyperbolic film I've ever seen. Like there's just like car accidents happening for no reason. Uh, It's just so melodramatic. But then the actual basis of the film starts Because it turns from, like, a crazy legal drama to, like, one of the most disturbing things you might ever see. (laughs) I don't want to say more than that if you haven't seen it. Possession is just so bonkers. It's actually beautiful. And it's one of the rare times where over the top is actually just amazing. So, uh, Possession, that's, that's, that's my recommendation to you. All right, then. And that's basically it for this week of the K-Cuts. And now we are going into the L-Cuts. 